The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Dor and I are honored to have our friend Ray Paul join us today on HealthGig. He is the chair of the National Board of Directors at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, otherwise known as AFSP. Ray is here to share with us his story about his son, Buck. Welcome, Ray, to Health Gig. We so appreciate your openness because we know it's going to help so many people today. So thank you for joining us. Dora and Tricia, thank you so much for having me today to talk about what is a very important topic in today's world. Yesterday, we had a pre-conversation and you told us your story. And if you feel comfortable sharing that, we would love our listeners to know more about you and how you got involved with the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. Yeah, I would be glad to share our story. It's uh, one that you never imagine yourself having to tell what our family has gone through so unexpectedly in our lives beginning with the loss of our son, wonderful son, Buck, who was 25 years old. Buck had gone to school in Richmond, Virginia, and to a small school, Hampton Sydney College, and graduated from Hampton Sydney and returned to Richmond and was living in the fan district of Richmond. If anyone's familiar with Richmond, they know it's a fun place to live for young people with restaurants and bars and a lot of activity, and living with his college buddies, working on a nice career track with Enterprise Car Rental in a management trainee capacity, and just seemed on his way in life. Seemed happy and fulfilled with what he was doing career-wise, and so many friends, and he was just the greatest, most affable of guys. On May 20th, 2012, on a rainy Sunday evening, my wife Tyler and I had gone to bed. We were early to bed people, and we were awakened by a knock, knock, knock on the door at around 11.30 or so, and it was such a persistent knock. I said to Tyler, I don't know why anybody would be knocking on our door at this hour of the night. There can't really be anything good on the other side of that door. Just kind of a little humor family lore. I had a, a history of not being the bravest person during the nighttime around the house. And if anything strange happened, I would be the first person to call 911. Buck and his sister Margaret would always tease me. There goes dad calling 911 again. But with that knock, knock, knock on the door, I called 911 and told the dispatcher that we had someone at the door and I was actually concerned about answering the door and would rather not and ask for a little support. She took a long pause and said, just hang on the line and let me stay with me. She came back on the line and said, Mr. Paul, that was actually a Richmond City detective who was knocking at your door. He needs to speak to you. And we looked at each other and just said, what could that all be about? And we went downstairs to the hallway and a detective and a Richmond policeman came to the door. They stepped inside and 
the detective said, this is the hardest thing about my job. And at that moment, Tyler and I just grabbed each other and didn't know what he was going to say next, but did not expect for him to say, your son just took his life. There we were just standing there. Then he followed that was saying there's nothing that you all can do tonight. You know, it's midnight, told us what to do the next morning, but just told us to sit tight during the night. As he was leaving, he, he said to us, I think you should want to know that your son loved you all very much. And you will find that out. And it was so cryptic, actually. But that's the words he left us with. From there, the next few days were just blank, a blur, really. But we were getting immediate support from family and friends. And importantly, our clergy, Randy Hollerth, was our minister at our church in Richmond, St. James's Episcopal Church. And Randy is dean of the National Cathedral in Washington right now. But he just was our rock. He right away tried to comfort us with such words of wisdom. First of all, you as a family cannot feel guilty about your loss of Buck or Buck taking his own life. It's going to be hard to do, he said, but you cannot allow yourself to be guilty, which is not easy to accept, but one advice that we've adhered to the best we can. And he also advised us to take it one day at a time and to take care of ourselves. Those words still resonate with us and words that we share with other families as well. And as we planned the funeral service, and I had said that I would do the eulogy, and I just didn't see there was any way that I could not pay tribute to Buck coming from his father, from his family. Randy asked me in the lead up to the funeral, he said, So how do you want to handle the 800-pound gorilla in the room? I said, Randy, by that do you mean, do we talk about how Buck died? And he said, that's what I mean, because most of the time it's not discussed, and the choice is yours. I just remember saying and thinking, because I was writing the eulogy already, talking about how Buck died. I said, Randy, there's... No way that we can talk about the way Buck lived if we don't talk about the way he died. And we just so strongly felt that right away. Because when people do take their own lives, and we've seen it through families or friends, and they're reticent to talk about it, then people become reticent to talk about the one that was lost. Because how they died is so uncomfortable it just leaves a void of being able to talk about how they live. We made a very public discussion of his death at the funeral and consequently had so many people thank us for talking about it so openly at the funeral. To go back on a story of the detective and his remarks to us that Buck loved us, Buck's apartment had become a crime scene as they have to investigate the death. We didn't have access to any of his things, and many of the things were taken to city lockup. It happened to be Memorial Day weekend, so we went through a whole week almost without knowing or having Buck's possessions with us. 
And we called the detective. He had given us his card and we called him and said, uh, we haven't gotten Buck's things yet. And he said, oh, that is so often unacceptable. I, I apologize so much. I tell you, I'm going to bring it out to you, his things myself. And he brought the things to us. And one of the things that he brought was Buck's journal that we didn't even know Buck had. He said, I think here you'll find out how your son loved you all. Tyler and our daughter, Margaret, we sat on a sofa together and almost afraid to open the journal and read Buck's note. When we did, it was such relief and Buck was very clever and creative in everything he did. And he left us the shortest, most meaningful note and maybe intentionally. So it's one that we didn't have to put away in a drawer and read every now and then. But the words were, and I'll just quote it to you, Buck said, in his handwriting, I have the most amazing family and friends. I've loved. I've seen the world. Thank you all for an amazing life. And he signed it, Ray M. Buck Paul III, his name. And that was left for us to see. And that is what the detective had seen and knew that it would be a, a positive message for us, which it, it surely has been knowing that Buck had a, a happy and fulfilling life. Randy Hollerth, back to him again, said, never seen such a, a note of love and fulfillment. Uh, most suicide notes are full of despondency and despair. So this has really galvanized us and, and helped us in more ways, knowing that Buck felt that way about his life. It makes it really hard from the perspective that he did not seek help for whatever was troubling him. And to think of him being to the point where he took his own life and not being able to share with us or his friends the struggles that we now just assume from everything we've learned that he definitely had. But we just saw right away how impactful and devastated it was to his friends and, and not just his family. So thank you, Ray, for sharing that. And Buck sounds like he was an incredible young man. But what strikes Dora and I and why we really want to talk about this and continue talking about suicide is that you've actually made it your mission, right, to talk to people about it and help people identify maybe warning signs, prevention. Can you share that and what work you're doing now? Yeah, I'll be glad to, Tricia, and, and some background on how I got to where I am now with AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. In the weeks and months after losing Buck, Tyler and Margaret and I were just at a loss of, of what to do. And our daughter, Margaret, lived and worked in Wilmington, North Carolina, and had just been there recently starting her career. We admire her bravery so much that she was looking for something in Wilmington to do related to suicide and prevention and mental health. And she found a walk called Out of the Darkness that is a AFSP-sponsored event that walks are held all over the country. And she signed up for the walk and was so supported by her new community down there, both workplace and friends and Tyler and I said, we will come down and join you for the walk. We founded that walk, a kinship and camaraderie of people like ourselves who had lost someone to suicide. And we really felt so connected and comforted by that. 
back in Richmond a couple months later, kind of a wintry night around five o'clock. I was wondering what I could do and I looked up AFSP website and had a series of numbers on the website, including that of Bob Gebbia, who was and still is the CEO of AFSP. And I called the number. It was after five o'clock and I just got a voicemail or message machine with Bob and I didn't leave a message, but almost right away, the phone rang back and he said, this is Bob Gebbia in New York at AFSP. Were you calling me for a reason? And it's not like it's a crisis line or anything, but there he was calling me back. And I said, Mr. Gebby, I really don't know why I'm calling, but I just feel the need to do something. And I told him about our story. He said, well, gosh, I said, I would like to do something. And one thing led to another. They invited me to New York in pretty short order. I was asked to come on the national board and have been on the national board since then for almost eight years in different capacities. And this past year, I was elected chair of the national board, which basically overwhelmed me because the board is full of so many incredible people, educators from the top schools and medical schools and psychiatrists. I always feel kind of small in comparison to them, but they in turn say, no, you bring the reason for what they do to the table. That has become our family from AFSB We've been able to share what we've learned. Tyler, my wife, felt particularly strong that we needed to be prepared as we were finding out that friends and family members were coming to us asking for advice about how to handle their own children who had difficulties from mental issues to addictions. And we really recognize the need to be able to give good advice through AFSP. We have unbelievable resources at this point. I'll just say to everyone, take an opportunity to go to our website, afsp.org. That's afsp.org. And I think you'll be amazed at what a treasure trove of information it contains about everything that we do as an organization. We're the leaders in private funding of suicide prevention research. We are advocates for public policy, the educational tools that we have for schools and all-age people about mental health and suicide prevention, and a very strong support system for people like us who are survivors of suicide loss. I really invite everyone to go and take a look. There's so much information that we use all the time for giving advice presentations to groups. And through the information that we've learned, it has taught us to learn more about what may have been going on in Buck's mind and brain, even though he didn't talk to us about it. We know that things obviously were not right. So we have understood and now know there are identifiable risk factors that you can consider for yourself or a friend or a loved one, that these risk factors can put a totality of someone's life into perspective if you see what made them be in a position to take their own lives or to consider taking their own lives. And those risk factors include health factors, historical factors, and environmental factors. And if we take a look at each one, the health factors, the most obvious health factors that play a part in someone 
taking their lives or mental health issues. They can be biological or psychological, but research shows that most people or over half the people that take their own lives had a mental health problem or issue going on at the time that they took their own lives. And those health issues are the number one culprit is depression, but also in the category of anxiety, bipolar disorders, they can be you know, psychosis, PTSD, the, the myriad of mental health issues that a person can have are definitely risk factors. Another group of risk factors are environmental or historical facts. It's really important to take a look at historical facts in someone's life. There may be a family history of high blood pressure or heart disease. There can be a history of depression or suicide loss in people's families that's often seen, and that has to be considered as a risk factor for people. Environmental factors are also important in considering a person's mental state. Has a person been under prolonged stress? Have they been under financial stress? Have they lost their job? Have they been unemployed for a while? Have there been stressful events in their lives? Has there been anything in their past, child abuse, for example, or potential environmental historical factors that increases a person's risk for taking their own lives? And another uh, environmental risk factor is, does a person have access to lethal means? Examples of that, are there guns in the house? Is there a hunter or just a gun for protection? We want everybody to be aware. If you have someone in your house that is suffering, make sure they don't have access to guns. Cars, bridges, medicines, these things that are available to a person can increase their use for lethal means. And that's something for everyone to be aware of. Their environmental risk or risks that can happen over time. But as a person struggles more, is under more stress, there become then warning signs. Warning signs in combination with the risk factors that I just talked about, the warning signs reflect the more imminent danger or more risk that someone is considering taking their own lives. Many of the things that we talk about seem to be common sense once you hear them, unless you talk about them, maybe you don't think about them so much, but the warning signs are how is a person behaving? Are they acting differently than they usually do? Are they being late when they're always on time? If they're in school, do they stop participating in sports or missing practices? Are they just acting outside of the way that they normally do? Are they drinking more? Are they just doing everything in a different pattern that they used to? And it's something that people need to be aware about themselves, but also their friends and loved ones. But I always want to say, looking out for yourself as well. A person's mood, has their mood changed? Are they starting to use language that they haven't used before? Do they talk about taking their own lives, something as obvious as that. Don't take it lightly if you do hear some of these warning signs.
How do the people who lost their loved ones get support? We found our support, as I said earlier, with AFSP. We offer great support networks and programs for survivors. We have one program, it's called Healing Conversations, that people like us who have lost someone, we volunteer to be accessible by any means, phone calls, video to someone who has just lost someone and to have that one-on-one connection with someone who needs support. Tyler has volunteered and does that. Wow, you're deep in your grief. And as you said earlier, people are looking to you and to Tyler and to Margaret for help in a way, right? How did you manage your grief and their grief and grief all around that we know is real? Early on, how did you, how did you manage that role? The first couple of years, we were just in a place of just a zone of not almost being able to function. I retired almost immediately from my career job that had me traveling all over the world. But I recognized right away for the first time, I always loved everywhere I went, never mind to travel. But all of a sudden, I just said, I can't get on the plane. I need to be with Tyler and Margaret. We became just a tight little cluster that clung to each other. And we, again, took it a day at a time. We were overwhelmed with support from family and friends that meant so much to us. And I think that's a lesson for everyone to embrace that support from family and friends and face. It sounds maybe cliche to say those things, but even now, 10, 11 years later, that it still matters a great deal to us when people support us, and they do at the anniversary dates of Buck's death, at the birthdays, they recognize and remember. It's very important, we think, to always talk to someone who has lost someone, and and suicide grief is very different than normal grief. All grief is bad and no grief is easy and all grief is different, but suicide grief is very complex. A family or loved ones are left with so many uncertain questions. But going up to someone who has lost someone to suicide, don't go up to someone and say, I know what you're feeling. Because unless you've experienced loss of suicide, you don't know what I'm feeling. We had a family who lost a son to suicide. And when I saw the dad, I knew I couldn't even say, I know what you're going through. Because I know that he's going through it differently than I am or did. But what I can say, and I would advise everyone to say, is I am here for you. I want to understand what you're going through. I'm always here to listen to you, and I'm here to help you navigate your grief journey. Supporting your friend or family loved ones in that way is so important. And we've also learned that it is never, ever too late to tell someone that you're sorry about their loss. I don't know about you all, but if a certain amount of time may pass when a friend of yours has lost someone, You almost become embarrassed if a year or two or three years has passed and you thought, I never wrote that note. 
Uh, yes. Oh, I see the person coming up the sidewalk and I never said anything to them. Yes. And, yes. You know, I just um, feel so bad. The right thing is knowing that it's never too late. Tyler and I still, to this day, will run across an old schoolmate or someone from our past who either maybe didn't know that we lost a son or they did and hadn't said anything. Then, you know, they feel guilty and they apologize. But it's not like that at all. The support that you get each and every day is meaningful. It's never too late. That's great advice. Good advice. Really good advice. Because you're right. Everybody's feeling something and nobody knows how to convey it. So it's great to have that guidance. At this point, I'm really pleased to welcome my colleague from AFSB, Kate Camel, who is our director of PR at AFSB. So happy you're here, Kate. Yes. Hi, Kate. What an incredible organization doing such amazing work. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be joining you all. So what do you want us to know about AFSP from your perspective? I think there's so many ways to get involved with the organization. We work on education, advocacy. We also have great support programs for what Ray is talking about, um, supporting those who've lost loved ones to suicide. There's always a way to get involved. So we have 74 chapters across the country. So there's always a local community that you can join. And I think Ray pointed to our website. So that's a great place to find more about what we do. What Ray's taught us about suicide is that it's more prevalent than I think we all really realize. Many of us have known somebody that has taken their life, but we didn't realize, Ray was explaining to us, oftentimes it is prevalent in younger people. Can you all talk about that a little bit? It's the second leading cause of death and the demographic of, I think, 15 to 24 and even on up into the early 30s, it's the second leading cause of death. And suicide nationally, there are around 49,000 deaths this past year. With the young people, it's really shocking and surprising how prevalent it is among that age group and demographic. And Buck being at the age of 25, we thought that having gotten him through high school and college, that those days full of peer pressure and difficult days are behind you. But we found that in today's world, it's not unusual for the young adults in their 20s or late teens to be in this group of people taking their own lives. And so much of it is attributable to the pressures of today's world, what goes on 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 social media, the amount of time that is spent on social media, the things that come with that, maybe the deprivation of sleep, the bullying that can take place online, for example. There are just so many consequences to those avenues of communication that lack of person-to-person communication and that we used to have now there are these new pressures on these young adults yeah i would echo everything that ray said and also say that there's some really hopeful signs among youth i think we've seen Mm -hmm. such a change in that demographic about willingness to talk about mental health which is a really positive shift to be able to have those kind of difficult conversations and we also at AFSP, ran a public opinion poll called the Harris Poll, and we found really hopeful data from that, that 94% of adults in the U.S. thought that suicide could be prevented, and 83% are interested in learning how they might be able to help someone. All that is really positive, though we see increases in people reporting both 
thoughts of suicide and death by suicide, we know that people are also more willing to engage in conversations around it. I don't have any statistics to prove this, but it's just my own independent survey. As Kate said, the young people want to talk about mental health. I'll be giving a presentation next week to a group of the whole upper school where Buck went to high school. When we first lost Buck, we really couldn't generate the interest at schools to have a discussion on mental health and suicide prevention. And here we are now, 11 years later, and the school has invited me to come speak and a separate presentation for the whole community for parents of K-12, through as well as family, friends, and anyone in Richmond who wants to come. This is such a big change, and it's being driven by the students in the school. They have really pushed the administrators and staff and teachers to have this conversation, to talk about mental health, because they see their friends take their lives, and it really shakes them up, scares them. They say, if it can happen to this person who apparently had everything going for them, then maybe it can happen to me or maybe it can happen to a friend. And it's been like such a big wake-up call. This group of young people wants to talk about it, and that's great to see. How do you start those awkward conversations if there's someone in your circle that you think is struggling with some mental health issues? We have a campaign that's called Seize the Awkward, S-E-I-Z-E, SeizeTheAwkward.org. That's the website, SeizeTheAwkward.org. It's something I'm particularly proud of as I am so interested in mental health and suicide prevention for the demographics of teenagers and young adults. And the campaign is done in conjunction with the Ad Council and the JED Foundation, J-E-D Foundation, that has grown around the country with presences on college campuses in support of mental health for students. But with that partnership, we have a series of incredibly effective ads that are seen on social media that have been viewed actually millions of times. They feature young people that young people can relate to. They inject somewhat of a sense of humor. Say two people talking with one friend worried about another. And it shows how to open up the awkward conversation with just the question simply, are you doing okay? You don't seem to be yourself. Do you want to talk about it? And just asking in a very non-judgmental way, not saying, what's wrong with you? You don't have anything to be sad about, but asking open questions like that so they can return and feel that you're trying to help. That is so helpful. What you're giving us are tools that we can use in our everyday lives. And it's so appreciated. You know, seize the awkward, like ask. It's a community of love and it's coming from a place of love. And people, when they're feeling alone, forget that they're loved. Along with Seize the Awkward, where we've really had a very targeted demographic of young people, African-American community, LGBTQ community, Hispanic, Latinx community. So really targeting all demographics because, again, suicide is not indiscriminate. It can affect everybody. And now we've just introduced a new campaign called Talk Away the Dark. That campaign, we have an adult daughter talking to her elderly or older dad, of course, who she is very worried about and his mental health state and capacity. 
And that ad shows how the daughter introduces her concern for her dad and how the dad responds to it. It's a very powerful ad. AFSP has created this resource to help anyone who's wanting to navigate these tough conversations. It's called A Real Convo Guide. It gives you prompts to start the conversation, some suggestions for best place to have it, how to continue the conversation. Sometimes it can be hard to feel like we've had the conversation. Well, how do we pick it back up? This guide will help give you some practical resources. Kate, do you feel extremely fortunate to have Ray Paul be part of AFSP? You must. Oh, we're so grateful for Ray and everything he does. It's so amazing, too, to hear him tell his story. I think it's so powerful. And I think that's one of the best parts of this organization is getting to have these peer-to-peer conversations, to know that we're not alone and there's a community of people who understand what you're going through. And again, just echo, Ray, your strength, your and Tyler's strength and Margaret's strength is just palatable. And we all are benefiting so much. Sorry. We all benefit so much from you all and from you sharing your story. And again, just knowing, telling our listeners, we are not alone and that we all can go different places in our mind, but that there is organizations and people that want to help. So you guys are doing incredible work. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. We should mention as part of our advocacy, we lobbied and worked very hard in Washington for the National Suicide Hotline, 988. I will proudly say that we played a very, very large role in having that legislation passed by Congress. And 988 came online a year ago this past July. If you call 988, you get a trained crisis counselor to talk to. It can be you as an individual who is in crisis and wants to call, or if you are with a friend or loved one in crisis and you don't know what to do, call 988 and you will reach someone who can help you. And it's been wildly successful in terms of number of people have called, I believe maybe six and a half million people have called into 988 since its inception a year ago, July, and a very high success rate of talking someone down out of crisis. You can call 988. There's also talk to text, particularly for younger people who prefer texting. Text talk at 741-741. And that's another way or means for someone to call who doesn't want to speak to someone, but is more comfortable texting. Thank you so much, Ray, for joining us on Health Gig. Trisha and I just wish you the best of luck with AFSP and let us know the website. Our website is afsp.org. That's afsp.org. Please take a look at it and look at all the different ways that you can participate with our organization. We have community walks. We have volunteer opportunities for everyone to help us support us in our mission. We're really grateful the organization is to Tricia and Doro for you all having us on to be able to talk about AFSB, to be able to talk about suicide, suicide prevention, mental health in a form and format that hopefully brings to people the ability to talk about it and not feel like you're going into an area that's taboo and not discussed. 
like it used to be considered not many years ago that you just didn't talk about suicide. We say you can talk about it. You should talk about it. And bottom line, final message is talk saves lives. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.